More than ever, it seems we are constantly bombarded, sometimes even drawn in, by the never-ending conflict and despair towards the future. As followers of Jesus, we press through the difficulties because there is a promise and a hope for the future. But what about those who don't know that hope? How can we live out the promise of the coming kingdom in our present moment with those around us? Good morning once again. Uh, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. Really thankful to be here with you this weekend. Uh, whether you're here in the auditorium or you are watching online, again, thanks for connecting with us here for our weekend services at Grace Church. Uh, if you don't know me, allow me a second to introduce myself. My name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And actually today I get the great privilege of continuing in a series that we have been in in a specific book of the Bible, as you can see too from the graphic behind me. We've been in the series walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And what we've been doing in this book, we've been kind of going through this book sequentially throughout this series. So like bit by bit or morsel by morsel from start to finish. And basically what we've been looking to do is we've been looking to see the ways that Paul, who is the writer of this letter, how he urges first century followers of Jesus in the city of Thessalonica and urges them to grow in their love for Jesus Christ, uh, to increase in their devotion and their affection for one another. And then this might be one of the most important things about the book of First Thessalonians is that Paul is constantly almost imploring or pleading with his audience, the Christ followers in Thessalonica, to live as more clear and vivid reflections of Jesus before a watching world. And so uh, the way we've been going about this series, actually, three weeks ago we started, and we have been going again sequentially, and we've looked at the first three chapters in turn in the first three weeks in the series. So week one, we looked at chapter one. Week two, we looked at chapter two. Week three, we looked at chapter three. And so today, obviously, we're looking at chapter five. That's what we're going to be doing today. Now, obviously, what we're going to be doing is looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So right away today, if you brought your Bibles or if you have them on your digital device, you can make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 right now. So begin making your way there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you and you prefer to follow along that way with like some tactile, tangible thing, we have some Bibles under the seats in front of you. This passage or this chapter will be found on page 957 and 958 in those Bibles. Last thing we want to say, we say this a lot, but we mean it. Uh, If you don't have a Bible of your own, like you don't own a copy of God's word, we want you to go ahead and just take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. Just consider that yours now. It's our gift. Uh, It's our gift from us to you. And then uh, hopefully it reflects this amazing value uh, that we have about what God's word is and what it does. We believe that the Bible is God speaking to us. It's giving his message about who he is and what he's like, uh, who we are and what our problem is, and also how we might come to find a restored relationship with him in Jesus. So again, consider that yours if you don't own a Bible. Just go ahead and take one of ours. So uh, as we're making our way to 1 Thessalonians 4, I do need to uh, give you a little bit of a qualifier this morning and say that uh, I am going to actually depart a little bit from my preaching predecessors throughout this series. And we are going to approach our conversation in 1 Thessalonians 4 a little differently than we have in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians in the first three weeks. And so in short, basically what I'm telling you all today is I'm going rogue. I'm going rogue today. And so, uh, listen, Pastor Steve, if you're out there, wherever you are, consider this a rather public apology for me ruining your series, this series that you so carefully and artfully and thoughtfully put together. But guys, with all the, all the love and the humility and the, self, uh, the, the preferential love kind of devotion that I have within my heart coming out of me, I say this to you. I do what I want, okay? I do what I want. So, <clears throat> so, so you might ask the question, why are you going rogue? Uh, why are you doing this differently? And what are you going to be different? What are you going to be doing differently? Well, simply put, First Thessalonians four. There is so much stuff that is like jam packed. It's like Campbell's condensed soup that's jammed in there in this chapter in our Bibles. We could easily, guys, do an entire series on this one chapter in the Bible, and it would be awesome. But because I know you don't want me droning on and on and on with all the details in 1 Thessalonians 4 today, what we're going to do, we are actually going to focus our energy and attention on looking at the last section of 1 Thessalonians 4. And that would be verses 13 
through 18, which in those Bibles under the seats in front of you is gonna be on page 958 there. And so listen, a little disclaimer, there is so much good stuff in the first 12 verses that we're not gonna be covering today in this chapter. So much good stuff. I would highly, highly recommend to you, implore with you, like implead with you that maybe you take the first 12 verses of first. Thessalonians, no, Thessalonians, it's hard to say, it really is in front of a group of people, but you take the first 12 verses and maybe make that a point where you're returning back to that this week, quite possibly with those scripture journals that you have that we've offered, and maybe with uh, the person that you're going through first Thessalonians with, your study buddy, your disciple-making friend, so I would encourage you to do that. Now, before we read, there's one more thing, one more thing. What we are about to read together today is what I would consider is like a key or classic, like milestone passage in all of the Bible that relates to something that Christians have called the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ, or sometimes it's also known as the return of Christ. So that from the earliest days, Christ's followers have held a resolute conviction that Jesus Christ will one day bring the salvation work that he started in his first coming, that he will bring that salvation work to full completion at his second coming. And we know from passages like this, as well as others from Paul scattered throughout the New Testament and places like Revelation, specifically in Revelation 21 and 22, we believe from passages like those that Jesus's return is going to result in eternal life with God forever uninhibited and unhindered, face-to-face, presence-like relationship with God in a restored creation, a renewed creation, what Revelation 21 will call the new heavens and the new earth. And that in this environment, Paul will tell us elsewhere that God himself will be, he says, all in all. And I think what he means there is that God will fill everything in every way. His presence will be palpable and tangible, right? And that God in this environment will decide to exercise his rule over this restored creation with his son, Jesus, co-ruling on the throne over it all. And so what we're about to witness here in 1 Thessalonians 4, as we read it, is possibly, quite possibly, the earliest expression that we have on record of Paul beginning to intimate some of these realities and these truths to Christ's followers in Thessalonica. Let's read this together. He begins by saying, brothers and sisters, so my family in the Lord, my siblings in Christ, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And by precede here, most scholars and commentators think that this should be understood as advantage. Those who are left alive will certainly not be at an advantage over those who have fallen asleep. He goes on in verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, as if that weren't enough, right? We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, man, this is beautiful. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. So after reading this, my guess is that half the audience, half of us in this room are like, are you just ready to jump out of your chairs and shout hallelujah? Anybody? Come on, right? Like half the audience is like, yeah, let's go. Let's give a woot woot and a shout. I'm never going to do that again, okay? But now, the other half of us, if you're a little bit more like me and the way I'm persuaded and just the way I think, the other half of us is probably like, that's weird. This is kind of strange, right? How many of you are like, I have no categories to understand what's going on here? And for that matter, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, when I read stuff like this, I'm like, yeah, I believe all that's happening, but that seems a little legendary, right? It seems a little mythical or far-fetched. Because we, we've never seen anything like this before, right? People being elevated on clouds, we've never seen that. 
We've got loud trumpet, trumpets blasting from heaven. Uh, we have got dead people rising, right? Our pets' heads are falling off. Like, what is happening here in this passage? I mean, I don't know about you, but this, this feels, this one feels a little like it's something straight out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, doesn't it? Like, here we have Thor coming from his home, his home country, which I don't remember, so all you Marvel geeks out there, don't, don't shoot the messenger. But Asgard, that's right. So he's coming from Asgard. He's coming on the Bifrost, right? The little portal that gets him from Asgard to Earth. And look at this. He has lightning shooting out of his eyes, and he is descending with Mjolnir. Right, I got that one right. His axe, Mjolnir, he's swinging it around, and you're like, dude, where did the Marvel brass get this imagery? Where did they get it? It's First Thessalonians 4, right? So sometimes it feels like, man, we've got this issue with we're thinking, we're thinking Thor when we're reading passages like First Thessalonians 4. And I'm a poet and I didn't know it, right? So, and to compound our struggle to understand the scene that is painted by Paul to the church in Thessalonica in the first century, to compound the struggles that we already have, we also have, I think you'll agree with me, the extra hurdle in the 21st century of various presentations of the second coming of Jesus that are provided to us by our lovely Christian subculture, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You know I'm talking about the books, this literature, and all the movies that include guys like Kirk Cameron. And by the way, look at, this is when he was younger. He's a strapping lad, isn't he, right? Left behind. And by the way, what we cannot, what we absolutely cannot forget is the, I think, grossly underappreciated and certifiably like Oscar-worthy performance of Nick Cage in the sequel, in the reboot, right? Where he, I'm gonna steal a declaration of independence. Yeah, so like, <laughs> now, he doesn't say that in Left Behind, but nevertheless, it's like one of my favorites. So it's a national treasure. Anyway, listen, listen to me. I am not here this morning. In no way, shape or form do I want to knock any of that. I'm not trying to say it's silly or stupid or that you shouldn't watch or any of that. What I am saying is that I think, I think we can all agree, we have a lot of extra going on here. Extra stuff that can strain the credibility of a passage and a teaching that is already difficult for us to grapple with, isn't it? And I'm just asking, isn't it possible, is it possible that an unhealthy obsession with some of the overly dramatized or dramatized portraits of the second coming of Jesus that's presented to us in Christian literature and in Christian cinema not only could further our skepticism and confusion, but that it could also possibly significantly impact the way that we understand and define what Paul is trying to tell us about this massive word right here. What is Christian hope? And is it possible that all the barrage of images that we see in these presentations of Christian subculture serve to further the confusion about what Christian hope really is all about. Just a case in point for you. Uh, earlier this week, uh, my daughter came up to me and she knew I was delivering the message this weekend. And so she asked me, uh, what passage are you preaching out of? And I was like, she's a girl after my own heart, a little budding Bible scholar there, it's awesome. And I was like, well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm talking about 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And her, immediately her eyes lit up and she's like, do you remember when we talked about that? And I'm like, no, I don't remember talking to you about this. Well, she proceeded to remind me that maybe about three or four years ago, she had been over a friend's house with a group of friends and she had come home a little bit later in the evening, like maybe about 11 or 11.30. And so we all went to bed at 11.30. That came out wrong. We didn't all like Willy Wonka this thing and sleep in the same bed. Like <laughs> we, we all went into our respective beds and we turned in for the night at about 11.30. And then I just, I remember she reminded me, I was woken up out of a dead sleep. No pun intended, First Thessalonians 4, dead sleep. Uh, so I was woken up out of a dead sleep. And uh, I just, it's two in the morning and she, I hear her sobbing uncontrollably, <clears throat> like loudly sobbing. And this is, this is a feat because not only is she on the other side of the house, it's a room on the other side from mine, but it's also on a different story. Like it's on the first floor, I'm on the second floor. So I'm like, what's going on here? So I collected myself and I tiptoed slowly and gently down the stairs. And I went to her, the, the door of her room and I just gently knocked with the back of my knuckle. And I opened up and I said, honey, how is your heart doing? Are you okay? It didn't go down like that at all, did it? Like <laughs> you dads know that two in the morning, woken up out of a dead sleep dad mode, I'm like burrowing down the stairs, like trying to like get things together. I opened the door like, what the heck's going on? 
What are you crying about? It's two in the morning. Well, after I calmed her down, no, after she calmed me down, right? We, we continued to have this conversation, and I discovered that earlier in the evening when she was at her friend's house, she and her friends had watched a certain, uh, not to be disclosed, a certain end times drama that depicted the return of Jesus Christ with images of explosions, planes flying into stuff, images of terror, horror, and apocalyptic doom and gloom. And as we processed through this a little bit more, I, I was startled by the conclusion that she came to. She said, Dad, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so scared. And I'm like, I'm so fearful. And then she literally said this. She said, I don't know if I want Jesus to come back. I don't know if I want Jesus to come back. And I thought, I just remember thinking, is this it? <laughs> is this what the hope of Jesus's return is really supposed to produce in a follower of Jesus? Is this it? Now, listen, I know, <clears throat> I know that this is an isolated incident. incident. You probably did not have this thing happen to you exactly in the way that happened to me, but I think what it at least did for me, guys, is it showed me that there is so much confusion and unclarity about the second coming of Jesus Christ and Christian hope. And so, guys, I am just really convinced that this is extremely relevant to us here today. Guys, I think that we, we need, in the 21st century, just as much clarity, the clarity that Paul provides in 1 Thessalonians 4, we need this just as much as his original audience in the first century. I mean, even the way that Paul begins by introducing the subject in this passage, I think tips us off to this reality. Look at what he says. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Let me ask you a question. Why lead with the double negative here? Why lead with the double negative? And, and actually, the NIV, does, NIV, this translation, does a phenomenal job of giving us kind of how it runs in Greek. Literally, in the original language, it reads, we do not want you to be not informed about those who sleep in death. Why the double negative? Because Paul could have just as easily, he could have saved scroll length and he could have much more succinctly said, hey guys, Thessalonian church, I want you to know something about the second coming of Jesus. I wanna give you a few key pieces of information that might be helpful to you as you live your lives. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, I think guys, by using the double negative, he's exposing the fact, listen, that any misinformation or bad information about the second coming of Jesus and those who die before that day is to their detriment. It's as if Paul is saying, guys, you cannot run the risk of ignorance on this one. It is way too critical to your faith and the hope of the future. And notice with me for a second why Paul thinks it is so critical as he goes on in this sentence. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We do not want you to be not informed about the dead in Christ, about those who sleep in death, so that... This so that here is absolutely huge because right away, Paul is connecting something for us. Paul is saying that being armed with the correct information that he is about to give them with regards to the second coming, being armed with the correct information isn't most fundamentally about the data and the information itself. That Paul is saying that it's not most fundamentally about knowing the right information so that we can predict the timing of the second coming. Neither is it so that we can decide whether or not Joe Biden is the Antichrist. That's not what he's saying. And neither is it that you thinking that that guy that cut you off on the road this morning as you came into church, right, is going to get an extra special dose and measure of the end time wrath of God for what he did to God's kid, right? No, I don't think Paul's saying that at all. Instead, look at the reason that Paul gives. We want you to be informed. We don't want you to be uninformed. Why? So that... You don't grieve in the same way that the rest of mankind who don't have the hope of Jesus grieve. What's he saying here? Well, I think, I think at least if we're gonna get an orbit around what he's talking about, Paul is saying that right thinking about the future hope is ultimately most about 
producing a mindset in a follower of Jesus and a corresponding lifestyle in the present as we live our lives in the here and now and as they live their lives in this city of Thessalonica. You see, I think that Paul is saying is the right information, right information is good, but right information is best when it generates, when it activates, when it produces something, that Christ followers are to live differently in things like grief than their rest of creation, than the rest of the people in their city. Christ followers are to live their lives now in the present in ways that are fully consistent with the information they know about the future hope that is coming at Jesus's return. And so, If that is true, if indeed the purpose of Christ's followers believing rightly and having the right information about the future hope is so pivotal for the way that we live in the present, the logical next question I think that we would ask Paul is this. All right, so what are those core, non-negotiable pieces of information? What are the core truths, Paul, that we can't be ignorant of? What are the core truths that prop up or reinforce or undergird this way of living differently, this different way of living? Because sure, possessing knowledge isn't the end goal. The information is not the end goal. That is true. However, it absolutely starts there. It starts there about what we believe and believe rightly. And so the question is, what are the truths that the Holy Spirit uses in followers of Jesus to undergird the future hope for the Christian. Now, guys, I strongly believe that Paul knew, he knew that these kinds of questions right here would naturally follow his claims about knowing truth regarding God's future plans, God's future plans. And how do I know this? How do I know this? Well, actually, the next thing that Paul does in the next two verses is he addresses it. He addresses it straight up. And he does so in such a unique and subtle way. And it's a way that most of us could easily overlook if our attention weren't drawn to it specifically. See, what Paul does is in verses 14 and 15, as he begins to give them the information, the truth that they need to know that will prop up their way of living in the present, he uses a single word twice in the next two verses that is highly significant. And it is this simple word that we see at the beginning of verse verse 14, this simple word, for. The word for. Now, the word in the original language, because you know know I'm going to give it to you, right? So it's also a three-letter word, and it's a very fascinating word. Again, we might otherwise skip it, but it's so fascinating. The word is gar, gar. And it's a funny little word. It kind of sounds funky to me. It sounds like you should say like a pirate, like gar, right? And, and because I said it that way, you know you want to say it with me. Say gar, gar. Yeah, so we got gar. So funny word. Now simply defined, if you were going to go to a Greek lexicon, which is all a Greek lexicon is, is it's giving you some definitions of how words like this would have been used in the first century when the New Testament was written. And gar, if you go there and you go to that entry, you would find things like this. That gar, when it kicks off a sentence, Gar is a marker. It's tipping you off to something. It is a marker first of cause. It is a marker first of cause. So when you see a guard at the beginning of a sentence, you know that what follows is the reason for something that was just stated. It is related to causality. It's cause and effect. Now listen to me. If you have a gar in the beginning of a sentence, what follows the gar is the foundation, the basis, or the cause for what preceded the gar. Let me say that one more time. If you have a gar that starts a sentence, what follows a gar gives you the cause or reason or the basis for what preceded the gar. And you're like, you lost me, bro, right? So let me just give you a couple of silly little examples that I think we can resonate with from everyday life where we would use gar. So how about this one? If I said to you, my stomach was satisfied as with the richest of bounties, You'd be like, that's, that's a really cool thing, Seth. I'm glad that you're so satisfied. If you ask the question, how did it get to be that way? What caused this state of being? I would then say, gar, I had eaten at Culver's earlier that day. And equally, if I said I had a little bit of an issue in the bathroom earlier, I could equally say, gar, I had eaten at Culver's that day. So that, that would apply too. But how about this one? All the people in the church congregation rejoiced with joy inexpressible. 
What, what caused that? Yeah, I like it. Apparently me preaching. I don't know. Gar, I ripped off a killer guitar solo. Like, how about this one? Simple. I was depressed and despondent again today. Gar, Cleveland Browns. Like, because you all know it's coming. It starts next Sunday, doesn't it? And everybody at the water cooler the following day is going to be depressed and despondent. And you're like, Gar, the Cleveland Browns. And so listen, you get it, right? We said that Paul uses this word gar at key points in the next two verses, verses 14 and 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4 in a very strategic way to again give the Thessalonians the right information that they need to know that will prop up a way of living. So let's ask, what's behind gar number one? What's behind gar number one? Verse 14. We don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Gar for we believe something. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Isn't this interesting? The first basis for a Christian's future hope isn't about the future at all, is it? It's about something that's already happened in the past, a once for all act that has transpired in the past. You see, I think for Paul, future hope for the Christian is grounded in something that he would call the gospel. And this gospel is nothing less than the good news that Jesus died to assume the consequences of our sin and our rebellion, the consequence of which is death. The fact that we die is a consequence of our broken relationship with God. Jesus died to take on those consequences and that he rose again to defeat it, to overcome death and to bring the hope of salvation to everyone who would be united to Jesus Christ by their faith and trust in him. Paul is saying that the first thing you need to know to live differently in light of the future is you need to know something about the past. That a single past act by one, Jesus himself, has opened up future resurrection life and hope for the many. So if we ask the question, how is it that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is the kind of God that raises people from the dead, Paul would say, he already did. He already did. And that belief that Christ died and rose for us triggers another belief here in verse 14. For we believe something that Jesus died and rose, and so consequently, we also believe something else. We believe that God will indeed certainty, take it to the bank, bring with Jesus those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in him. And so we believe that the same thing that happened to Jesus will happen in the future to those who have united themselves to him by trust and faith in him. The future hope, Paul says, first and foremost, is grounded, it's certified in a past event. But we said there are two guards in this passage. So what's behind guard number two? Well, actually, if we move forward into verse 15, Paul gives us a second reason why we can not grieve like those who have no hope. He said, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And you're like, Seth, there ain't no guard there. And to this I would say, doggone it. I'm just going to let that one sit for a second. It was so bad. All right. Okay, anyway, I'm just going to have to move on. So actually, the NIV here translates at the, very, at the very beginning of verse 15, it has this according to here, which is actually in the original language. Guess what it is? It's a gar. It's a gar. And I think it's really helpful because the ESV brings this out a little bit more. It says, for gar, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Interesting that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Guys, notice here that as Paul begins to pivot from the past event of Jesus's death and resurrection to look forward to Jesus's return, and as he preps the Christ followers in Thessalonica about the specifics of that event that he's gonna return to or get to in verses 16 and 17, Notice he says that the details about the second coming of Jesus 
aren't some crazy thing that he invented on his own. Look at this. Paul says it is a word issued from who? It's the Lord, Jesus himself. Now, whether this word of the Lord was an unrecorded statement of Jesus in his life and ministry that we don't have in our gospels, or quite possibly it could be um, a distillation of things that Jesus did say throughout the gospels in places like Matthew 24 about his second coming, Or maybe some people think that actually Paul received this word from the Lord by like a direct revelation from the ascended Jesus. In many respects, that is of little to no consequence. The point here is that Jesus himself, the Lord himself, through Paul, is giving to his people exactly what they need to know about his second coming, about that future hope. Exactly what we need to know about how it's going to go down. And this is what we get in verses 16 through 17. Now, I have to warn you here. There is so much stuff that is packed into all the phrasing that Paul uses in the next several verses. And we are going to, unfortunately, for the sake of time, have to speed through this and not get hung up on a lot of the details about this word from Jesus about the future. And so I do not pretend for a second like we're all going to catch everything that we need as we go rapid fire through this. So I might suggest to you, again, that you get out your first Thessalonians notebooks or some notepad and just begin writing things down. Questions, lingering questions that you have as we speed through this or things that were notable to you or things that you want to highlight so that you can study later on and dig into those with your disciple-making study buddy, right? So this is what we're going to do. Here's what you need to know. As we comb through these next two verses, the scene that Paul paints for us here, the scene of the Lord's return, borrows so heavily from the descent of the Lord, his name is Yahweh, to meet the people of Israel on a mountain called Sinai that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 19. So the story goes prior to that is God liberates the people of Israel with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm from slavery to Egypt. And he brings them to himself at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, if we were to read it, we discover that God himself, the presence of the living God descends to the top of the mountain so that he can meet and dwell with his people in covenant relationship, in close proximity, covenant relationship. And what's interesting is that in Exodus 19, it is the Lord God, Yahweh himself, is the one who's descending on the mountain. But here in 1 Thessalonians 4, who's coming down? Who's coming down? The Lord, yes, but who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus himself will come down from heaven to meet with his people, to dwell with them, to be present. Guys, do you see this? This is a powerful attestation of the all-surpassing divinity and deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator God through whom everything exists and from whom everything exists. He is the God of creation and the God of covenant relationship with his people. And notice, as we fast forward here, notice the emphasis on Jesus's descent, God himself's descent. Notice the emphasis on sounds in the next three phrases, which are also callbacks to Exodus 19, by the way. First, we get a loud command. The Lord comes down and he issues a command. In Exodus 19, there are many commandments that the Lord Yahweh issues to his covenant people as a means for them to understand what it means to function in the relationship with God. So as at Sinai and the giving of the commandments, there's also a loud command that is issued by Jesus here at his return. He comes down and with a loud command, then eventually the dead are raised. Now here's what's fascinating. Scholars point out that the loud command here is likely an echo of something that Jesus himself said in John chapter five, verses 24 through 25. Guys, check this out. Look at what Jesus commands by his powerful word in John 5. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They have, even right now, the life that is promised in the coming age. They have eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming. Indeed, in some measure, it's already here. But I want you to focus in on this. A time is coming in the future when what? The dead 
will hear the voice of who? The Son of God, Jesus, the cry of command. And when Jesus commands it, when the word is issued forth, what happens? Those who hear will, come on, live. Resurrection, life from the dead at the second coming of Jesus. The word of God himself, Jesus, is pronouncing at the second coming a new commandment, a new command. And that command generates new creation life for all eternity. And this new creation command that generates new life is something that God's word has always done from the very beginning of our Bibles. In Genesis 1, God says it, and life and flourishing and order and beauty come into the world. When God says it, life comes out of nothing. So our God, Jesus, issues a cry of command, and our resurrection life will come out of the womb of death. The sounds continue in 1 Thessalonians 4. They continue with the voice of an archangel, which in Jewish thinking was kind of like a chief spiritual being in God's heavenly entourage who is escorting the God and King, the Lord Jesus, down to earth to meet his people. We have the trumpet call of God, which is also yet another Sinai Easter egg in Exodus 19, where the arrival of Yahweh is signaled and announced. His presence is announced by long sustained trumpet blast. Our God is here. And then we are told that the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are alive will have their bodies transformed something that Paul unpacks further in 1 Corinthians 15, that those who are alive will receive their resurrection bodies in the twinkling of an eye, check it out, at the sound of the last trumpet call of God. And we move on. All this culminates in the newly resurrected people of God being caught up in the clouds, which is undoubtedly a callback to Acts chapter one, when Jesus himself, their Lord, was taken up on a cloud to be seated at the right hand of God to rule and reign. What does that say about Jesus's people? If we're being caught up on the clouds, it means we will rule and we will reign. Jesus's followers, it says in this passage, go up to meet him in the air in order to usher Jesus back to the earth so his thoroughgoing lordship would be evident and permanent in all of creation. Now, the language that is used here of the meeting or the greeting of the Lord in the air by the church would have reminded anyone in the first century of the arrival of Caesar, the arrival of the Roman emperor to a major city, to their city, so that that emperor might establish his peace, his rule, his justice, his goodness, and judge those who oppose him and his people to confirm his rule. Now listen, we could go on and on and on, but I think one scholar has summarized everything that's going on with this portrait here of the return of Jesus Christ in a very powerful way. He says, this teaching about the return of Jesus was presented to do what? To comfort those in grief by connecting the confession of the past creed of belief, Jesus died and rose again with the reality of the resurrection of the dead in Christ in the future. This is precisely not the stuff of speculative prophecy or bestsellers on the end times. The decidedly bizarre pictures of airplanes dropping out of the sky, cars careening out of control as the rapture happens, they're detracting. They can so easily distract us. They detract from real hope, from the hope that this passage is designed by Paul to teach. The picture presented here is of the royal coming of Jesus Christ, our God and King. And the church, as the official delegation, we go out to meet him with the dead heading up the procession as those not least honored or at a disadvantage, but most honored. This meeting, please hear this. This meeting will unite the coming king with his subjects forever forever. And so Paul says, we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with Jesus. And if you're a Christ follower, we can, as a result of this, echo Dr. Green's final statement in this quote. Guys, what a glorious hope. What a glorious promise that we have in Christ. Christ followers in the room, are these not amazing and profound theological truths? Aren't these glorious realities? But remember with me for a second. Remember 
that for Paul, knowledge of how it's going to go down, knowledge of the future hope is grounded, yes, both in Jesus's past action and his word about the future, but these things are given with a gar. They're given to fuel us living differently in this time, in this version of this world. And so we might ask the question, well, how is a Christ follower challenged to live our lives differently as we follow Jesus in this world? How are we challenged by this passage to live these things out? And I would just say to you, there are probably many applications and I would encourage you to continue to study this passage and others in 1 Thessalonians throughout the week. But I would just say, and maybe this is honestly like too simplistic, but I think it's okay because it's exactly what Paul concludes. Paul actually gives, I think, the primary, the first and foremost application as to how we are challenged to live this out in our lives. He gives it to us straight away in verse 18. He says, therefore, which in many respects functions as the reverse of the four. In other words, what follows is a direct consequence of what is preceded. What does he say? Therefore, in light of all these truths and all these beliefs and things you're holding dearly, what do we do? We encourage one another. We look at one another and we encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. He's already paid the price. He's already died and rose again for us. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Encourage one another, church, with these words. I might say that the first action step, if we're gonna put it in a short little quippy statement, the first action step is this, guys. Church, followers of Jesus, keep resurrection in front of you always. Always keep resurrection in front of you. Remind yourself of it constantly. Remind one another of it. Remind, 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 remind one another of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your debt is paid in full. And remind each other of the word that comes from the Lord about the future. He is coming again. Encourage each other. Find someone to encourage with these words. Take it to your community or to your life group. Remind them that the Lord will swallow up death in victory forever. He will be present with us always and we will reign with him for all eternity. First application, remind each other of these words. I think we also have maybe what I would consider by Paul here, a second application or second challenge for followers of Jesus. And it more so has to do with the way that we as followers of Jesus mourn for those that we have lost who are the dead in Christ, who have followed Jesus in their life. Guys, I don't know about you, but when it comes to death, especially of a loved one who I know, yeah, I know conceptually, I know in my brain that they were connected, they were united with Christ. I know I'll see them again, but so often when I'm in the pain and the heartache and the sorrow, when I feel like they have been just ripped away from me. I'm just often at a loss for words. Anybody else with me? Like you just don't know what to say. And so as like my, go through these mental gyrations, what am I supposed to say? I wind up just like fumbling out these empty platitudes like, it's gonna be okay. Or things like, well, I guess the pain will subside or it'll pass in time, Right? Guys, I think if Paul were here in front of us addressing us instead of me today, I think he would look at us and with, maybe gently, he would say, no, no. No, that is, you do not grieve like others who have no hope. Listen, I wanna tell you that Christ's followers still ought to grieve. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, Paul will say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep, mourn, grieve with those who weep, mourn, and grieve. Because we know that death, death is still a very real enemy that awaits to be completely annihilated when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back. But guys, Paul says we grieve differently because we know something. We know something. So instead of, it'll get better, I promise. What do we do? We address one another with the reality of resurrection. And we come alongside those who are mourning and grieving and we mourn and grieve with them, but we address each other with the hope that Jesus gives us. I love how one scholar, N.T. Wright, exhorts us to these things. 
He asks, how does resurrection in this passage function within Paul's larger picture? Initially as an incentive to the right sort of grief, not the kind of grief that overtakes people without hope. These people in the pagan world of Thessalonians knew so well. He says, there's nothing unchristian about grief. And Paul can refer to grief, including his own, as a Christian phenomenon needing no apology, no apology. This is, in fact, though, in this passage, as close as we come in early Christian literature of the theme, much beloved of preachers at funerals, namely the promise of a reunion beyond the grave with Christians already dead. The pastoral logic of the passage insists that, and hear me, an eventual reunion is exactly what the creator God has in mind. And he will accomplish this at the time of Jesus' return. Let me just tell you this morning, if you are in the midst of pain and grief and loss over a loved one who is a follower of Jesus who has died, allow me as your brother in Christ to remind you and to encourage you. Your sorrow, your pain, your hurt, it's not pointless. It's not. You can grieve. But listen, you need to know that that ache that you feel inside you is a sign. And it's pointing your heart and letting you know that you are longing for resurrection and reunion in the future. Come, Lord Jesus, and bring that environment about. And lastly, as the band comes up, um, what I want to do is just shift for a second. And I want to address an audience in the room that I haven't yet. And that would be those of you who maybe don't follow Jesus or those of you who might say are investigating Jesus. You're curious about what this whole Jesus thing is and why a group of people would assemble throughout the week in these small groups and life groups and come together to hear God's word on a weekend. Why would you do that? So you're investigating. And I would just say, uh, maybe you're asking, uh, okay, I hear what you're saying about uh, this passage being an encouragement to people who trust in Jesus, but, but what about somebody who doesn't? Does it have anything to say to me? And I would say with all the, the love and the, um, the gentleness that I can muster, and I'm just asking for your grace here as I deliver this, that this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4 might not say as much to you as it says about you in your present state. About you in your present state. Look again with me at verse 13. Paul says that Christ's followers should not grieve like, he says, the rest of humanity, the rest of humankind, mankind. And he characterizes and he calls these folks as those who have no hope. And listen, I think Paul is revealing a subtle agony that exists within him as he considers the lack of hope beyond the grave for those who haven't trusted in Jesus. Now, please hear my heart. But Paul's saying it, not me. Please, I need your grace here. If you are without Jesus, you're hopeless. You're about death till we're blue in the face, about what happens beyond the grave, what happens in the future. But we can never be absolutely sure that those opinions are true until death comes, until death comes. And guys, if we're never really sure, we're never really sure, hope just becomes wishful thinking, doesn't it? rather than what we're given here in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is a historically grounded and reliable certainty of the good that God has planned for followers of Jesus in the future. So I would just say this to you. If you're hopeless today, there's good news. There's good news. Why? Because someone has tasted death and come out the other side in resurrection. And that Lord has a word to say to you about the future. And this same Jesus invites you to unite yourself to him in a real relationship that's based in his past work 
so that you might know him in relationship and share in resurrection inheritance. And all that is, is an appeal to put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your hope and your trust, follow him by faith. And what that means is Romans 10, nine says it so well. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord of all creation and you believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. So there is good news. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And here's the thing. Let us know that you have made that commitment and that decision today because we as a church community want to walk alongside you to help you grow in the Christian life that Jesus has brought you into. So if you're longing for that, put your hope and your trust in Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. And not only just to make the cut to escape hell, but so that you can grow in resurrection living now as we all wait with eager expectation for the promised future that is coming at Jesus's return. Bottom line, Jesus is our hope. He died and rose again. He went first in the middle of history so that all those united to him by faith would experience the same through death and into resurrection life with God himself for all eternity. Let's pray and celebrate our God together who makes it possible. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these truths. Thank you so much for, in a way, encoding your heart for us in these words that were delivered to a church community 2,000 years ago in in the ancient city of Thessalonica through the Apostle Paul's words. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for delivering to us through Paul your word about the future. And thank you so much for securing that future hope because of what you did once for all for us. So Jesus, we are asking that by the spirit that you send into the hearts of your followers and the spirit that is at work to aliven hearts who have yet to follow Jesus, to stir them up to do so. Holy Spirit, I ask that for every person in this room, would you nudge their hearts in such a way that we know exactly how to respond to you in worship, in praise, in adoration of you, to thank you for the good work that you've done and what you've invited us into in the gospel and to thank you that you have restored and rescued us to point us forward, to be with you forever in the reunion of the saints and in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus, we love you and we are so grateful. We are so grateful for what you've done and what you're going to do. And we pray it in your almighty name, amen.